Tonight I want to begin a four-part series that I simply call The Child of God. And we want to look at four different qualities that ought to be true of those who are children of God. And so this will carry us to the end of the year, that is the rest of the month. And I thought perhaps an appropriate way to end 2020. It's been quite a uh, strange year, a difficult year in many ways. And yet we ought to end the year as we ought to be in every part of our lives. We ought to be the happy child of God. We ought to be a mature child of God, the spiritual child of God, and the assured child of God. And so tonight, let's begin that by talking about the happy child of God. Children of God, because we are children of God, ought to be happy people. Two things we're going to notice in our study tonight. Let's start with this. This, first of all, we're going to consider that this is a characteristic of those who are citizens of the kingdom. So let's open our Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to study the whole sermon. We're going to look at the Beatitudes. And then we'll come back and talk about some other principles after looking at the Beatitudes. Let's look in Matthew chapter 5. Let's put it in its setting. In chapter 4 of the book of Matthew and in verse 23, the text says that Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So that tells me the subject matter that he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount was about the kingdom of God. And so here are three things the sermon was about. It was about citizens of the kingdom, their characteristics, their influence on the world. Then he moves and talks about righteousness in the kingdom. And then he talks about the exhortation to enter the kingdom of God. What a marvelous sermon this was. But in the first part of the sermon, he talks about the characteristics of those who are the citizens of the kingdom. That's what the Beatitudes were all about. And so let's talk about those Beatitudes found in verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5. And so I encourage you to get a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and let's look at those 12 verses. Let's define the concept of what a Beatitude is or what the term Beatitude refers to and why these are called Beatitudes. The word beatitude comes from a Latin word which means blessing. And thus these have to do with blessings, but it's more than that. A.T. Robertson said that blessed or blessed comes from the root word which means to speak well of, and thus it means or carries the connotation of being happy. Now those two work together, those two concepts, and we're going to put together in a moment. Let's add some more pieces of the puzzle and throw out on the table, and that is, let's look at what Vincent says. Vincent says, its root is supposed to be a word meaning great, and its earlier meaning appears to be limited to outward prosperity, so that it's used at times as synonymous with rich. In other words, this word translated blessed or blessed be, as you notice beginning at verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who are mourned, and blessed are those who are meek, that word translated blessed from which we get the concept of beatitude, that it can mean happy, as Robertson observes, but Vincent says that it carried the idea in its root form, that carried this idea of outward prosperity, and so it could have a connotation of being rich. And so one is rich, blessed, or rich is the one who is thus and so. So let's put those together, those concepts together. The idea of blessed is the one who, and then we fill in the blanks in a moment, is one, it has to do with one who is happy because he is richly spiritually blessed. So the text tells us, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who are more, and blessed are those who are meek. Let's just take the meek, for example. 
Blessed are those who are meek. What does he mean by blessed are those who are meek? That they are happy because they are richly spiritually blessed. And that's the, the, uh, the, the concept of the Beatitudes. Now, there are eight characteristics that are mentioned here. He mentions poor in spirit. And he mentions those who mourn, mentions the meek, those who hunger and thirst, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart, those who are peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. Those are not eight different people. That blessed is the one who is a peacemaker, but then there's another person who may not be a peacemaker, but they may be merciful. No, those are not eight different people, but these are eight characteristics of the same people. What Jesus does in the beginning of his sermon is he attacks the core of human reasoning, as he often does in his teaching. And what we mean by attacking the core of human reasoning, he shocks his hearers at the kind of people who are truly blessed and who are truly happy. Who would think to say that the one who is poor in spirit is the one who's happy? And the one who mourns is truly happy. And the one who is a, a peacemaker is truly happy. And the one who is persecuted is richly blessed and therefore is happy. He shocks his hearers with the message he presents. These are not mere statements that Jesus is uttering, but exclamations. In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, Oh, the blessedness and the joy of following Christ. Oh, what a rich blessing there is in being poor in spirit. And what a rich blessing there is in being one who mourns. And so let's talk about the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom. And all of these describe people who are truly happy because they're richly blessed. Let's start with poor in spirit. Look at verse 3. We're going to work our way through these 12 verses. And then we're going to add some other principles about how Jesus brings happiness. And therefore, we ought to be the happy child of God. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's define the idea of poor. The idea of being poor is to be completely destitute. It has reference to abject poverty. One who reaches the stage or the point of being a beggar. And so he recognizes his abject poverty. But he's not merely one who is poor, but he's poor, the text says, in spirit. By in spirit, this has reference to what a man is, not what a man has. He's not poor with material things. That's not where his poverty lies. But he recognizes his utter helplessness before God. He recognizes that he is utterly destitute spiritually. He puts his whole trust in God because he is dependent upon God recognizing there is nothing that he has of himself. He recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy. That's why he comes to God. In fact, the first four of these is describing how one gains the kingdom and enters the kingdom. Before you ever enter into the kingdom, you first of all have to recognize your abject poverty before God, and you are spiritually bankrupt before God, and that's why we depend upon God. So this person needs guidance. This person needs instruction, and he will completely submit to God's will because he recognizes I'm spiritually bankrupt. He's poor in spirit. But verse 3 goes on to say, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How and in what sense is theirs the kingdom of heaven? That kind of person is one who enters the kingdom. Without reading every detail of these verses, like John 3, verse 3 and verse 5, that you must be born of, of water and the Spirit to enter the kingdom, and you must be converted to enter the kingdom, Matthew chapter 18, it is this person who recognizes their abject poverty before God who enters into the kingdom. But it's also because they are the heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, 
and in verse 17, that if we are children, mentioned at verse 16, if we are children, then heirs and heirs of God according to, uh, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him. We shall also be glorified together. So one who recognizes this poverty before God is one who's going to enter the kingdom, and then they also enter into the eternal home. Now let's go to verse 4. Here's another principle that describes the person who's truly happy. Now let's go back to the first one just for a moment. He's happy because he's poor in spirit. Now that's not the, the point. He's not saying because you are poor in spirit and you have abject poverty, that makes you happy. But because you become dependent on God and you recognize what God can do for you, that leads to that state of richness and blessing and therefore you're happy. Same thing with the idea of mourning. What's the idea of mourning? Let's go to verse 4. Verse 4 of our text in Matthew chapter 5 said, Blessed are those for they shall be comforted. That is, they're mourning as weeping for the dead. This is not a mere sadness that overcomes them just for a moment, but they're weeping and they're mourning for what? Because they recognize that poverty, that spiritual poverty of verse 3, they mourn over wrongdoing. We may mourn over the wrongdoing of the world. Paul did that in Romans chapter 9. That he had a great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to for I could wish I myself were cursed from Christ for, for my brethren, he said. And I, in chapter 10 and in verse 1, that he had this, again, this, this sorrow in his heart and a desire that they might be saved. We might sorrow for brethren and their sin, uh, like 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in verse 2, which was absent at Corinth. But I'm more interested in, go to James chapter 4, there ought to be sorrow for our own sin. Let's go to James chapter James 4 and in verse 9, weep. What does it mean by that? Well, let your laughter be turned to mourning to gloom. That is, one who is in sin needs to turn to the fact that they recognize what sin is doing and therefore they mourn over their own wrongdoing. Well, that's exactly what the fornicator at Corinth came to when he was, he was disciplined, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He's mourning over his wrongdoing. So blessed are those who mourn over their sin, over their wrongdoing. They recognize that poverty. They shall be comforted. How shall they be comforted? Well, when they mourn over their sin, they're going to be comforted because they are forgiven and they can know they're forgiven. That's the point of 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The assurance that I have been forgiven. So they're comforted because they know I can be forgiven of all that I'm mourning over. They can recognize that their sin is remembered against them no more. Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 12. They recognize the burden is lifted. Come to me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So here's that burden of sin has been lifted and he doesn't have that anymore. But let's look at an example of that. In Acts chapter 2, the 3,000, they mourned for their sin. They mourned. Let's go to Acts chapter 2 just quickly. Notice in verse 37, when they were pricked in their hearts... They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They're mourning for their sin, the text says. But they were comforted because when they were told what to do for their forgiveness of sins, they that glad to receive the word were baptized. And so they were comforted in that. But here's another principle. Blessed are those who are, verse 5, <clears throat> the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are meek, are richly blessed and therefore they're happy. Now what does it mean by the idea of meek? Meekness carries the idea of complete mastery of one's inner self. It doesn't describe, as some have thought, a, a sense of weakness 
and one who doesn't have any real strength, but they're just kind of this mild and meek and frail person. But it's a complete mastery. Actually, it describes strength rather than weakness. Vine says it begins with humility and submission to God and then leads to gentleness toward mankind and toward others. So it begins with a recognition of one's own self, and so they're humble. Then it deals with submission to God. That's part of meekness. But then also being gentle in our dealings with others. So sometimes that word may be translated in the idea of gentleness. It may give the idea of submission, and it may have reference to humility. All of that's involved in meekness. It has reference to one who is disciplined, and they control themselves, and they humbly submit to God. Now get the picture here. The picture is one recognizes their poverty before God. They mourn for their sin. And with this complete humility, they submit unto God and whatever his will may be. Now the text says, they shall inherit the earth. Now that's a unique phrase. They shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? They shall inherit the earth. Well, it seems to be used in the scriptures in the context of, of enjoying life to the fullest. One who has complete mastery of their will and submits to the will of God and is gentle toward others, enjoys life to the fullest. Now there's more involved as we're going to see. Thayer in his lexicon, this is a lexicographer, not a commentator, but sometimes they do make comments more than just defining. And this is more comments than defining. But he's trying to describe to us the concept of what it means to inherit the earth. He said, but as Israelites after taking possession of the land, were harassed almost perpetually by their hostile neighbors and even driven out of the country for a considerable period, it came to pass that the phrase was transferred to denote the tranquil and stable possession of the Holy Land crowned with all the divine blessings. You see what he's saying? What he's saying is that phrase had reference to enjoying the land, that is, enjoying life to the fullest. Later he says that it came, became a formula denoting the partaking of eternal salvation in the Messiah's kingdom. So it can have reference to enjoying life to the fullest. Let's see how that's used in Psalm 37. That gives us some insight. So let's turn over to Psalm 37. Tom would forbid to go into detail of the entire psalm. That's another sermon within itself. But three times in this psalm, that phrase, they shall inherit the earth, is used. Notice it at verse 9, that... This is a psalm, by the way, about God's providence, God's just providence as we have entitled it, or some have entitled this psalm. But notice at verse 9, For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That phrase again is used in verse 11, But the meek shall inherit the earth. That's where this quotation seems to be coming from. And then at verse 22, we see that phrase again, That those who are blessed by Him shall inherit the earth. But now let's notice some things in the context that that would seem to include being blessed in this life. Look at verse 34, 35, and 36. Here is a psalm that talks about inheriting the earth, but it seems to give and point toward the idea of being blessed in this life and therefore enjoying this life. Look at verse 34. Wait on the Lord. The one who waits on the Lord inherits the earth earlier in the, in the psalm and keeps his way. He shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. As I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a native green tree, yet he has passed away, and behold, he will, uh, was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he was 
out. It seems to point to the idea that he's going to inherit the land in the sense he enjoys life here on earth. But it's also used seemingly to include eternal life as per verse 18 of the context. Go back to verse 18 of Psalm 37. Verse 18, the Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. They're going to inherit the earth and their inheritance shall be forever. So it seems to be a twofold concept. They're going to enjoy life to the fullest and then they have the hope of eternal life. The very thing that Thayer pointed out, the meek shall inherit the earth. But here's another phrase. Notice now at verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Here is one who is indeed happy because he's richly blessed. It's one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Barclay says the idea of hunger usually means hunger for some, but not for all. But here it has to do with being hunger, hungry for the whole. In other words, when you say you're hungry, you may after services go home or go to a restaurant and say, I'm hungry. You probably are not hungry for all you can get, but you're hungry for some. Barclay is observing this is a hunger for the whole thing. It's a craving and a hungering and a thirsting that goes to any length to satisfy that hunger. Now, they're hungry for righteousness. That is, being right with God. Romans 1 and verse 17 uses that term righteousness in the sense of being right with God or God's plan for making men righteous. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's in the gospel wherein God's plan for making men righteous. So what they're hungering for is they're hungering to be right with God. It's a craving desire. I want to be right with God more than anything else. I recognize my poverty before God. I'm mourning for my sin. And I want to submit to the will of God. And I'm hungering and desiring more than anything else to be right with God. Now the text says those who have that spirit shall be filled. What does it mean they shall be filled? Their desire shall be satisfied. In other words, the hungry person who's hungry for it all, he's going to be filled and he's completely satisfied. You have this craving desire to be right with God, you're going to be right with God. So we noticed in Romans 1:17 about the righteousness of God, that phrase is used again. Actually, that should be verse 21 to 26, where here the righteousness of God again is revealed apart from the law. That is, God has a plan for making men righteous by faith. So he is satisfied because he can be justified by faith. Jesus is pictured as being water, John chapter 4. Being, he's pictured as being bread, John chapter 6, verse 35. So he satisfies our hunger spiritually. And so therefore we stand right with God. But here's another phrase. Blessed are, verse 7, the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. What does that mean? They show mercy. They're merciful because they show mercy. They show compassion. They show sympathy. Here is an attitude that's born out of an awareness of my own need for mercy and a gratitude for the mercy that God has shown to me, so therefore I'm willing to show mercy toward others. The idea of mercy puts yourself in the place of another, and you feel what they feel. It's the idea of compassion. Now those who are merciful, they shall, the text said, obtain mercy. What does that mean? Well, they'll obtain forgiveness, they'll seek forgiveness, and they'll get it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 9 suggests that. That if we walk in the light of season, the light we have fellowship, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. They receive help from the high priest. 
that we have a merciful high priest to whom we go in the time of, of need, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. And then therefore, it also would include others responding with care. If you're a merciful person, others will respond to you in mercy. So we have a high priest that shows mercy, others show mercy, and we have forgiveness. And so those who are merciful shall obtain mercy. But here's the next one, the pure in heart, verse 8. Here's another characteristic, the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean there, pure in heart? Phillips translates that utterly sincere. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, or those who are utterly sincere. It is a picture and describes a, the purity of a single-minded devotion to God. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11 and in verse 2 describes that single-minded devotion to God. For I am jealous of you with a God jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. There is that single-minded devotion to Christ. And so here it again, it is the idea of that utter sincerity. One writer said, the kingdom belongs to those who, abs who absolutely honest, who are absolutely honest and sincere, not to those who can't, do not put both feet into the kingdom. Now think of that for a moment. It belongs to those who put both feet into the kingdom because they're honest and sincere, not to those who put one foot into the kingdom and one foot into the world. They're not honest and they're not sincere. They're not utterly sincere in their service to the Lord. But here's an interesting phrase, much like they shall inherit the earth. This is not a phrase that we use every day. And that is, they shall see God. But no man has seen God at any time. So what does it mean, they shall see God? The idea of seeing means to understand, to possess, or to enjoy relationship. Let me give you an example or two of that. Let's turn to the book of John. It doesn't mean that those who are pure in heart, they're going to look into the skies and they're going to look into the heavens and they see a vision that none of the rest of us could see because they have actually seen God. That's not how they see God. John 3 and in verse 3, we're focusing on the word see here. John 3 and verse 3, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Have you ever seen the kingdom of God? You've seen people who are in the kingdom, but, but the kingdom is not something you literally see. What does it mean you see the kingdom? You see it in the sense that you have possession of it, or you enter into it, or you enjoy that relationship. Look at verse 6. He who believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, but he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. How do you see life? You enjoy life. You experience life. And that same term, phrase is used in Psalm 16, he shall not see corruption. How do you see corruption? You experience corruption. So it's the idea of entering into a relationship with God and enjoying that fellowship with God. So blessed are those who are pure in heart, who are utterly sincere, because they'll see God in the sense they have a relationship with God, and they enjoy that relationship with God. But here's the next. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, verse 9. For they shall be called sons of God. What's the idea of being a peacemaker? Well, they seek peace with God. They seek to be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5 and in verse 20. They also seek peace with brethren. They pursue after things which make for peace. They seek peace with the world and with others. Romans chapter 12 and verse, live peaceably with all men, verse 18. 
So they're seeking peaceful relationship. It's the opposite of being a troublemaker. But I like what Barclay observed. He says this is not merely a passive acceptance of things. What does he mean by that? That this peacemaker is not the idea of one who is, I, I don't want to make trouble and I don't want to make waves and I don't, I don't want to say anything and I don't want to cause any problem. So I'm just going to be kind of a peacemaker and I'm, just, I'm not going to. No, that's not the idea. That's not the peacemaker here. It's not one who's being afraid of making trouble, and so I don't, since I don't want to make trouble, I'm just a peacemaker, but it's one who makes peace through struggle. He works at making peace. He may even have to ruffle feathers in order to make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. In what sense are they the children of God? Let's go to John 8 and verse 44. Remember Jesus told some Jews, you are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. What he's saying is you're children of the devil. What do you mean you're children? Of, you're just like him. You're your daddy's child. You take on his characteristics. You act just like him. So you can be a child of the devil because you act just like him. When you're a child of God, then you're acting just like God. You take on the characteristics of God. God is a peacemaker. He's a God of peace. But here's the last of those Characteristics mentioned here, and then we move to another principle. Blessed are those who persecute you, verse 11 says. Or blessed are those who are persecuted, verse 10, for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, persecution has to do with suffering for the cause of right. Look at verse 10. Who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. If you suffer, but it's not for righteousness sake, you suffer tragedy, the whole world suffers. A tornado comes through and wipes out the town and, and you're part of those that receive the destruction. That's not persecution because that's on, the, on, on everybody. But this is a suffering for righteousness sake, suffering for the cause of righteousness. There are three terms that are used here. Persecute has to do with harassing or causing trouble, those who cause trouble for you. They may revile you. Notice it, verse 11, blessed are, they when, uh, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. They insult you. They call you degrading names. They say all manner of evil against you. Notice that at verse 11. That is, they say, give false charges and their slanders uh, that's uttered in, uh, against you. For theirs is the kingdom. In what sense? They, they are the kind of people who enter the kingdom. We've already noticed John and uh, 3 in Matthew 18, and they're heirs to the eternal home, Romans chapter 8 and in verse 17. Now let's go back and analyze those eight characteristics and categorize Have eight characteristics here. Four of those are essential to gain the kingdom. Remember this sermon about the kingdom. And four of those are essential to maintain citizenship. So Jesus is saying, this is the, the kingdom I'm describing to you, and here are some characteristics that you need and you have to have in order to enter the kingdom. You have to recognize your abject poverty before God, number one. And number two, you have to mourn for your sin. You have to be meek and, and submit willfully to God. And then you have to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then you enter the kingdom. You become citizens of the kingdom. But in order to maintain that citizenship, you need to be merciful, pure in heart, a peacemaker, and you need to be one who's willing to be persecuted. This describes new attitudes to enter the kingdom and to be a part of the kingdom. There's a new attitude toward self, a new attitude toward God, and a new attitude toward others. How is there a new attitude toward self? You look at yourself and recognize I'm poor in spirit and you're mourning for your sin. 
There's a new attitude toward God because you're meek and willing to submit to God and you hunger and thirst to be right with God. There's a new attitude toward others because you're merciful and you're a peacemaker and you recognize they're persecuting you for the kingdom's sake. Now let's spend a little time talking about Jesus came to bring happiness. Our overall writing picture is the happy child of God. God's people need to be happy people. It's a choice we make. And Jesus came to bring happiness. How do I know he came to bring happiness? Well, the announcement of his birth gave us a hint of that. And so if we had no other picture, and we were there at the time that he was to be born, and listening to the prophecies and the statements being made about his coming to the earth, we get a hint that he's supposed to bring happiness to us. How so? Well, in Luke chapter 2, there was, he would bring glad tidings of great joy. Now that gives me a picture, something about him coming to earth. Here's the announcement of his birth in Luke chapter 2, that here is a message of good tidings of great joy, the text says. Well, in Matthew chapter 1, in the announcement, in Matthew's account of his coming, he's the answer to the greatest problem because he's going to, be the, he's going to save his people from their sins. So you look at all the problems of the world, and he comes to solve the biggest problem of all. We'll say more about that in just a moment. In fact, the prophecies of the Old Testament would include this in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. He would be said to be the prince of peace. So he's going to bring peace on earth. He's going to bring joy on earth. He's going to be the answer to all of man's problems. And that's before we get any picture of who he really is. And so the announcement of his birth gave us a hint he's going to bring happiness. But he brings happiness by bringing the removal of the source of unhappiness. All unhappiness comes because of sin. You can't name a problem that man has that doesn't root back to somehow a problem with sin. You can't think of a problem. You say, well, a sickness and disease. Well, sickness and disease came about because of sin being introduced into the world. So Jesus came to bring an answer to the biggest problem that man has, the source of unhappiness. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 5 where John says he came to take away our sin. This is just one sampling of many passages where he came to take away our sin. And you know that he was manifest to take away our sins and in him was no sin. So he was the only man walking on earth who ever never committed a sin and he came to take away our sin, the text says. And he came to show us how to be happy. He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. And so he left us an example of happiness, of how to live a happy life and the kind of things that are involved. But thirdly, we're talking about how Jesus came to bring happiness and he wants me to be happy. How do I know that? Because he's going to tell me that I can be happy by following him and not happy because of the circumstance that is around me. You say, how do you know that? Let's go back to the Beatitudes just in thought. We don't have to go back, turn there. Because we've developed those thoughts that happy is the one or richly blessed and therefore happy is the one who is and then we have these eight characteristics. So he's telling me I can be happy by following him and entering the kingdom and being the person who follows him rather than the circumstance dictating my happiness. Now let's look at Philippians. Let's look at two passages in Philippians, actually three verses in Philippians and then we'll make some comments about the overall picture of Philippians. And the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, some have suggested, though I think there's more involved, that the theme of the book of Philippians has to do with happiness or joy in Christ. That's a partial theme of the book, but they base that upon the fact that verse 1 of chapter 3 said, Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, 
Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write to you the same things is tedious, but for you it is safe. Now look at verse, verse 2. Uh, or rather, not verse 2, but I want you to go to chapter 4 and in verse, verse 1. Chapter 4 and in verse 1, he said, um, Therefore, he said, uh, my joy and my crown, I'm reading Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brethren, long for brethren, my joy and my crown stand fast. You are my joy and, and my crown. Well, here are some passages, in fact, there are others found in the text, that talk about rejoicing and this joy that is found in Christ Jesus. But there's more to the story than that. This rejoicing found in Philippians 3 and verse 1, Philippians 3 and in verse 3, in chapter 4 and in verse 1, this idea of joy or rejoicing is in the context of Paul being in prison. Now here's, here's our point. That Jesus is telling us we can have happiness by following him, not by the circumstances that we happen to find ourselves in. Our circumstances might be we live in 2020. It might be we're living in the midst of a pandemic. It might be that we're going through an election that's not going like we want, whichever way it may go. But our happiness is not based upon the circumstance Paul was in prison, and he's talking about happiness. Paul talked about commitment of following Christ. That's really the theme of the book. And because of that, there is this joy. I'm not going to take the time to trace those references, but just one of those, Philippians 1 and in verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So in other words, here's this commitment to Christ. That's the theme of the book. And as a result of that, there's the joy that comes despite all the circumstances. You see, good can come from bad circumstances. Paul talked about his imprisonment falling out to the spread of the gospel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Paul talked about focusing on others. Notice the things he talks about when he talks about happiness. Happiness doesn't come from focusing on self, but in the context of happiness, he talks about focusing on others, chapter 2, verses 3, chapter 4, verse 5, that your moderation be known unto all men. Happiness comes without complaining and grumbling. Some think the only way they can be happy is if they grumble and complain about all the problems in life. Well, they're not happy. But furthermore, it comes through sacrifice. Paul talked about all that he gave up and he sacrificed for the cause of Christ. It comes from following rules. We walk by the same rule, chapter 3 and in verse 16, and being content, chapter 4, verse 11. But let's go to one more passage along that same line. Let's go to James chapter 1. What I'm trying to do is drive home the principle that happiness comes in following Christ and not by the circumstance I find myself in. If, if I just could find myself in a better circumstance, I think I could be happy. I think I'd be a happy child of God. You can be happy in the midst of a bad circumstance. And so James 1 and verse 2 tells me that very same thing. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Interesting phrase. In the midst of persecution, you count it all joy? Linsky made this interesting comment. He said... How shall the readers consider their many trials as all joy? The participle states, why? Because their faith is thus developed into constancy, brave perseverance. It grows into strong manhood. It is tested out, the dross is removed, and Christians ought to rejoice because of that and not pity themselves or grow sad. That's interesting. Right in the midst of persecution, when you are being threatened and you are being tried and you are being mistreated because of your faith, count it all joy. 
Now, how could you do that? You do that because you recognize all the dross has been taken away. So rather than pity yourself because of the circumstance, the happiness comes through Christ. So here's what I have to conclude from that. That God wants me to be happy and God has a plan for making me happy. We ought to be happy children of God. We learn from those principles we just noticed from Philippians and from James that external circumstances cannot take away true happiness unless we surrender that happiness. If we're robbed of it, we're robbed by our permission. In other words, if you've let the, the circumstance of life rob you of your happiness, you gave permission for that. You forgot about the joy in Christ. You forgot about the Beatitudes. We ought to be happy children of God. Renhold Niebuhr was credited, he was the professor of practical theology at the Union Theological Seminary. He was credited with the wording of the serenity prayer with which most of you are familiar. The prayer that he uttered was and worded was this, O God and Heavenly Father, grant to us the serenity of mind to accept that which cannot be changed, the courage to change that which can be changed, and the wisdom to know the one from the other through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That ought to be our prayer, that help me to accept what I can't change. Just, I just have to live with that. And have the courage to change what I can, and help me to know the difference of what I can do something about and what I cannot do. Well, that's the first of four about the child of God, the happy child of God. That's the characteristics of the citizens of the kingdom, and Jesus came to bring happiness. We'll continue that study of the child of God in our next Lord's Day evening session. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing?